Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Squad Room, the podcast devoted to creating and optimizing a healthy and fulfilling life for first responders all around the world. I'm your host, Garrett Teslaw. I'm a sergeant for a sheriff's department in Southern California, and on this show, I talk to experts in a variety of fields looking for those force multipliers that I can apply to my own life. I want to make us happier, healthier, better at our jobs so we can tackle our challenging careers with energy and focus. The entire purpose of this podcast is to make myself better and then share what I'm learning with you. Now, before we get to the interview today, I want to remind you that you can get more information on this episode, including show notes and links to our guests' information by going to thesquadroom.net. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Squad Room. Now, our guest today, this is a great episode. I'm, I'm really excited about this one uh, because it's going to be stuff that you can apply directly to the job. It's stuff that you can directly apply to improving your training. Uh, and it's a popular topic among cops because all we're talking about today is guns, gunfighting, uh, shooting, practicing at the range, and developing that mindset that you need uh, to, to succeed out there on the street. Our guest today is uh, a man who I've been looking forward to talking to for quite some time, Scott Reitz. Scott is the author of The Art of Modern Gunfighting, and uh, he is he has got a career that I should probably just have you clear your schedule for the next couple of minutes while I tell you about what he is up to. Uh, but uh, the important stuff, let's get to that, is that Scott has done 30 years with Los Angeles Police Department, 10 years of that uh, in the SWAT team there. And he was the advanced firearms instructor for all in-service training for LAPD for all 19 divisions for 15 years. He was the primary firearms instructor for the elite metro division of LAPD. And, of course, he's in charge of training at his own company now that he's had for quite some time, International Tactical Training Seminars. You can go to internationaltactical.com for his class schedule and information there. But let me give you some more of his bio. Just not the, For people who work around the Los Angeles Police Department like I do, uh, the idea that Metro and the quality of the guys that work Metro is, is not to be overstated. It is the Los Angeles or the, the, the law enforcement equivalent of probably the Tier 1 operators like SEALs, Delta, Green Berets. The process they go through is intense. It's uh, it's really something, and and a lot of the stuff that is learned out of metro uh, events, metro calls, SWAT calls, is the stuff that we on the outskirts get dis- it gets disseminated to us, and in our train our training, our tactics, all those sorts of things are direct are directly influenced by what uh, metro officers and SWAT officers at LAPD have developed. Um, you know. Uh, at least here on the West Coast, and uh, and largely uh, even into the Rockies and even further east, uh, you know, we always direct the f- the fact that we carry rifles, AR-15 rifles, in our cars now because of the North Hollywood shootout, and that was something that we learned from LAPD. But anyway, specifically back to Scott, um, he's instructed for the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, he's taught uh, with pretty much every Special Forces unit out there: SEAL Team Six, Delta, Task Force 160, Special Ops. Uh, he's participated in hundreds of high-risk felony warrant services, barricaded subjects, hostage negotiations. He's worked uh, VIP details for different four different presidents and heads of state. Um, he is a use-of-force tactics expert witness for police and federal agencies in federal and superior court. He's taught numerous uh, local and federal jurisdictions on tactical firearms training. He's a regular columnist for SWAT magazine. And like I said, he's the uh, author of the, uh, the Art of Modern Gunfighting, Volume 1. Volume 2 and Volume 3 are following uh, closely. Scott, uh, I first learned of Scott actually not necessarily directly from the firearm stuff, but he had a podcast episode with Sam Harris, who some of you may know. It's a fantastic podcast episode, that, and I listened to Sam Harris's podcast. He had, he had, on, he had Scott on. Um, which was a little out of the ordinary for the kind of topics that Sam Harris talks about. And it ended up being a great discussion of law enforcement use of force to, uh, told by a cop to a civilian. So it was a gr- if you want to direct some people or you want to understand how to maybe frame this conversation of use of force with your civilian friends who think, why can't we shoot it out of their hand? Or uh, why are the cops overly aggressive? That sort of stuff. Listen to Scott's episode with Sam Harris, and you'll get some really good insights in how to present these challenging issues that we deal with to an audience uh, that just doesn't understand what we do. It's a really great episode. I'll put the link to it, of course, in the show notes for this episode, thesquadroom.net. So today's a great, in, great 
It's a great discussion of tactics, of mindset, of the things you can actually take with you right after this episode ends to bring to the range to learn how to get better, things to focus on, the things to ignore, how to pick good instructors, how to ignore the, how to find, uh, how to find good instructors, how to weed out the ones that are just fluff. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation, um, and I really enjoyed it. Scott's going to come back on, I think, in the future. We'd love to have him back on, and uh, we can go even deeper into these things. So here we are with Scott Reeds. Scott Reitz, former uh, retired LAPD Metro uh, owner and chief firearms instructor for International Tactical Training Solutions and the author of The Art of Modern Gunfighting, The Pistol, Volume 1, which is a thick book for just being about just – I assume there's going to be more volumes if, uh, if that's in the title there, Scott. But welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Garrett. So um, I've, I've learned about you a couple different ways. One was, well, actually, the first way was um, on Sam Harris's podcast. And I thought the discussion you had with him was really eye-opening and a great introduction for civilians to some of the issues that we face in law enforcement. So first thing I want to do is recommend that people, after they finish this episode, go find your episode with Sam Harris uh, and, and listen to that if you're not necessarily in law enforcement, but you're interested about what we do. Secondly, as I just mentioned right before we hit record, was that we have a partner in common. Uh, one of my old, one of my first sergeants is one of your first partners way back in the day, uh, Van mm-hmm. Nuys Special Problems Unit. But we went through your bio before you came on, and you're primarily known for your firearms and tactics uh, instruction training, both with LAPD and now on your own as you, with your independent company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you wrote the book. You you literally wrote the book on modern gunfighting. So I wanted to have you on because I like these discussions because I feel like often, you know, we have officers around the country who are listening, uh, around the world who are listening. And a lot of us often don't get um, the one-on-one time with instructors that we need or that we would like or that we have access to. I mean, I'm I'm a short drive from you. I can come down and take a class at uh, ITTS and many of my partners have. And honestly, someday I want to, but others don't. So I like having these discussions to maybe spread some of this knowledge. And um, I want to jump right in with, with, I guess, your, your universal truths about gunfighting. You have two in your book. And your first universal truth about gunfighting is there's no truths. <laughs> that, that is very true. And then the second <laughs> one is that uh, there's a continuity to how the – there's continuity within each of these gunfights, whether they went poorly or they went well. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Well, the first thing is that all shootings – are unique unto themselves. Um, I've been working on federal and superior court cases, defending officers and other civilians as well, but for the last 28 years in both federal and superior court. And when I do these cases, I have to study them greatly in depth. And we're talking about thousands and thousands of pages of paperwork. We're talking about walkthroughs and all, all the things that go into that blood spray, blood spray pattern analysis, casings, trajectories, Autopsy reports, toxicology reports, uh, witness reports, photographs. It just runs the gamut. And at first blush, on the surface, a lot of people think, well, shooting's a shooting. And you hear this all the time. Well, all gunfights are inside seven yards, and all gunfights are at this time and that time. And nothing could really be further from the truth. It may seem at first blush that they're all the same, but they're not. And the one thing that has, and I only get controversial shootings. You don't need me in a clean shooting. Uh, it's, that would be analogous to generating a radio call that says, go see the family getting along. It's simply not going to happen. <laughs> we don't get those. No, no. So I get these ones, and what I see are mistake after mistake after mistake, and not necessarily, and we'll get into this later on perhaps in the conversation, but when shootings go very well, this is thread of continuity where you have mental composure, you have very clean basic skills, what we term mechanics in ITTS, uh, that you have a composure, stillness of the mind, where you're decision-making. And my personal definition of gunfighting, which I mentioned in the book, is that gunfighting is problem-solving and adaptation at speed under extreme duress. The average gunfight is about 2.53 seconds from inception to completion. So from the time that you have formalized Within your mind, the fact that you have to apply deadly force toward another individual to cessation of activities on your part toward that individual cessate. We're talking about 2.53 seconds. That's not a whole lot of time to spool up. So the officers that do very well in gunfights have really clean mechanics well in hand. They understand. They have good tactics. And what they're doing is they're going through it 
and it's just a very smooth, clean line process. On the other hand, you go to the other end of the spectrum, you have shootings that go terribly awry. And this is where you do not have metal composure. You don't have any, really any semblance of mechanics, let alone clean mechanics whatsoever. And these are ones that go very, very badly. And we see these on the news. And we'll talk about this later, how the news is impacted. And everything now travels at light speed. And I have literally gotten calls from NBC News. They sent a limo over to me. And they've called up and said, have you seen this gunfight or this shooting? And I said, no, when did this happen? 15 minutes ago. It's out in, let's say, Ohio somewhere. And will you be willing to talk to us about it? We're going to send a limo. Okay. And I'll literally have a limo. I'll be back at NBC Studios, Universal Studios, before a robbery homicide team or a shooting investigation team has even gotten to the scene on the shooting. That That is how fast everything has changed in this day and age. It's completely different than it was back in the 70s and 80s. So when I said that there's a threat of continuity, all this stuff has to be in place well beforehand. Uh, there's no warm-up in a gunfight. There's no syllabus in a gunfight. And people don't like that term gunfighting, but you are fighting, you are applying deadly force, and you're using firearms, which by any other name would be gunfighting. Right. So I want to dive right into that then because that's one of my big questions is um, you just said it a little bit, but in the book, in the book, and I'll quote it from the book because that's how this question got spurred, but you, you define gunfighting as the mental evaluation of a situation followed by the physical application of the mechanics to carry out the firing solution. Mental mm -hmm. composure under stress in concert with adaptation will always be the key to successfully resolving a gunfight. And I thought that was really interesting and you kind of brought it up right now, but I'm wondering where the mental evaluation fits into the idea of also developing muscle memory. Cause we, we emphasize so much muscle memory in Academy shooting or your, or quarterly mm -hmm. qual, but are they exclusive of each other, or do they work in sync, and how do you work? How do you train that? Well, no, they're synergistic. They work upon and within one another. Um, you have really solid mechanics. Uh, if, you know, if you go back to Bruce Lee, and you know, I've studied some of his writing, and it's fascinating because I never met the man, but his philosophy and mine are exactly the same. same. I, think, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was Jeet Kune Do, which is the way of no way. In other words, you had to have solid basics. But then you had to adapt. And what you do when you have solid basics is many of the things which are occurring, and I get this all the time when I take officers and walkthroughs in a shooting, and I have to ask, I get them very still in their mind, set them apart, and I say, okay, I want you, we're going to go back through this from the very beginning. And I literally splice time and start walking them through it. It's an hours-long process. Much of the, many of the things mechanically that they are doing are occurring in a subconscious fashion when you have been trained appropriately. Now, if that occurs, what that allows you to do is spend 95% of the time processing information and making the correct determination. If, on the other hand, you do not have clean mechanics, which cannot be brought to the forefront in a critical situation, in a subconscious fashion, now you're fighting. That's when, well, I've got to remember the draw stroke. I have to remember this. I have to remember the decocking lever down or the thumb safety offer. You know, if you're reloading in magazines, are they facing the right direction? Am I using the sights? Am I jumping on the trigger? Am I not applying follow-through? There are all these different mechanics which go into a process that have to be in place well beforehand. And that's what I'm referring to, that when you get to a certain level of training, uh, what I found in my shootings is that I was actually very still in my mind. It was just, the things just happened. Everything came together. And... It's very true that you fight as you train. And if you train very diligently and are very attentive to detail and brutally honest with yourself and train to your shortcomings, hopefully we're going to shore up the shortcomings. They will no longer be shortcomings, but rather they'll be strengths as opposed to deficits. And you're going to be able to apply clean mechanics when it counts the most. Walk through from from you know assessing a threat or identifying a threat to pulling the trigger, what are those mechanics, just so people understand what we're talking about? Well, you're going to deal with something I call, I term dead space. We term dead space. And that is anything that you have to do physiologically, mechanically, psychologically, until your sights are on trigger, and you have all the slack taken out of the trigger, and you're literally one nanosecond away from pressing the trigger, 
Uh, everything leading up to that is what I would term dead space. In other words, if you conducted a vehicle stop and suddenly a suspect comes out and he's shooting, well, you know, you've got to put it in park, you've got to open the door, you've got to draw, you've got to exit the vehicle, attempt cover, you've got to, you know, come up online, you've got to get on the site, you have to take slack out. Everything, that's all dead space. And you can get dead space from something as simply as simple as, say, well, ready. Dead space is going through a shoot house or going in a critical uh, search warrant, you know, crisis entry on a search warrant, rock houses that we used to do hundreds and hundreds of, still do. That's all dead space until you get to that point, that seminal point, when you're actually applying deadly force. So you have to be able to get through that very cleanly, very quickly. And you have to do so with a very calm clinical approach. And that takes a tremendous amount of training. Make note, there's, you cannot learn this overnight. It's physically impossible to do so. That's, that's what I found. It just takes a lot of diligent training. And it, it, I mentioned in the book that there's a brutal honesty in gunfighting. When the smoke is cleared and all is said and done, either you've made the right decisions or you have not, either you've struck your opponent squarely or you have not, or either your opponent has struck you or he's not. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Very honest. So that's what you're looking for is to attain those clean lines through training. But it has to be done in realistic training. It has to be done with an eye toward what's realistic. There's a lot of who molly molly out there sometimes. And it's all spin and marketing and smoke and mirrors. And it's frustrating because people are betting their life on something which is unproven or is simply untenable in the real world. So that's a good question and one that we struggle with, you know, especially nowadays with social media and YouTube and everybody's a a shooting expert, or can claim to be a shooting expert, rather. How can people weed out some of the nonsense and really seek out quality instruction in their area? Well, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's completely unvetted. Um, I would, almost out of control, if you want my honest opinion. Please. Uh, one of the ways that you can do it is to ask an individual for a CV. And if they say, what's a CV, that's clue number one. That's a curriculum vitae. That's your background. And then after the CV, have them sign it when they claim to do all this. And then say that you're going to check into it and see if you ever get a CV. Mm -hmm. um, is it important, do you think, to have that background like you do? Or we have other guests on the show, another guest, Aaron Baruga, who runs Gorilla, uh, Gorilla Approach Firearms Training, who's a former Green Beret who several tours and he has a similar argument that you do to that there's a lot of nonsense and theatrics out there um do you necessarily need that background or is it or can someone who has just spent a lifetime of shooting still qualify as a quality instructor no i think there are quality instructors out there that may not be involved in military or law enforcement however here's the big difference when you go to court, especially in this day and age, when you go to court and you are dealing with policies, police policies, practices, procedures, and protocols, it is a whole different ballgame. So what might work well on a range or in a range setting, what might work well in an IPSC event or something like that, may not be a tenable um, application in the real world where you're called upon to answer for each and every single action. And they are breaking this down. The, the individuals who come after police now, and it's a very extremely lucrative, extremely lucrative uh, process nowadays. And they hire experts who are almost always former police for whatever reason. That's what they've decided to do. And what you're looking at are individuals who know how to tear apart every single second of an event and now suddenly you're going you're left with having to answer some very salient questions well who trained you and well you know this guy well okay we're going to depot him we're going to bring him in we're going to look at his cv and if we can find a chink in the armor they're going to open it up so it's kind of a you know I, I just one of the things i tell all my students is use common sense something which is fast going out of vogue <laughs> And that is, you know, it's just, I look at something and if it, it makes sense to me, then it makes sense. Um, I had one individual who said, well, I wouldn't listen to anybody who advocates the low ready position. And quite honestly, the low ready position has probably stopped more gunfights than anything else. It's a very viable technique. If you can get, get a rounder tire for my car, I'll buy it. But sometimes the simplest, cleanest line is the most pragmatic. And just because it's new doesn't mean it's better. 
I like that quote too, that just because it's new, it doesn't mean it's better. So it took 11 years before you were in your first officer-involved shooting with LA. And by that time you were in Metro, um, often people mistake or misunderstand that they think of Metro only as SWAT, but can you explain what Metro is in, in relation to LAPD and what it takes to get in there? Yeah. Metro is a specialized division. I think, believe not, not mistaken on my history on it was, uh, Formerly, the 1938 is originally was a strike-breaking unit. It then morphed into a specialized unit. When I came in, there were 240 people entirety. In its entirety, we had 60 men in SWAT, 60 men in B platoon, 60 men in C platoon. Um, it, you had to be a P3. You had to be in the top 10% of ratings, training officer. You had to be in the top 10% of ratings on the department-wide. You took a... Uh, you took a... A physical fitness test, which was a no-brainer, but then uh, you also had oral boards, which were stress orals, and you might have on any given year, what, 150 people try out, and out of those 150, they might take 15 into Metro. Sometimes it was every other year that they did it, and then once you're in Metro, you were eligible to try out for SWAT, but only after you've been in Metro for a year, and then that that process was immeasurably harder and more difficult to get into, so by the time you made it into SWAT, in effect, you had made your bones. You had you had to have a specialty. I was a narcotic. I was not only a narcotics expert, but a heroin expert as well. So you had to have specialties. You had to have, uh, you know, you had really you know st- strong, solid background. You had to know your stuff. Uh, you, you know, it's just you had to be a solid street cop. And they went and they talked to all your partners. They talked to supervisors you had worked with. Uh, so it was very, very competitive. They recently uh, upgraded Metro to 500 officers. So they doubled the size of it, uh, literally overnight, I mean, the last year. So Metro, in my day, we did bank stakeouts, witness protection. We did uh, all the high-risk service warrants. They were really high-risk, and it went to SWAT. Uh, we did uh, stakeout. We worked on, like, the hillside strangler cases, you know, all these different high-profile cases. And anything of an unusual riots, anything of an unusual nature that the department was ill-equipped to respond to, Metro responded to. So you had your two, you and your partner, you had your plane wrap crown Vic, all your gear was carried in the trunk. It was a take home car and you're basically a mobile, uh, a mobile force that could get around. So you're in uh, Metro at this point and I, by the, by the, your first shooting, you were on SWAT at that point. Mm-hmm. So you That's had correct. gone through this whole process you just described and now you're in the, like the top tier uh, operator for, for LAPD and what was interesting was that it took 11 years, you know, in, in, at LAPD before you were in your first, and you ended up in five total. And your your the distance, the time between your first one and your second one was one week. Oh, mm-hmm. Exactly. One week to the day, you said. And yeah. that strikes me, and I was thinking in relation to our department, we have an officer who, uh, canine handler most of his career, uh, always been in the thick of it, always there. Mm-hmm. He's just never had to be the one to pull the trigger until recently. And after 20 years, he's in his first OIS. Conversely, we have a guy who's six weeks out of the academy. He's on field training, and he's his partner on this call. And, uh, you know, he's involved in the shooting. So we have six mm-hmm. weeks all the way to 20 years. So you've it took 11 years to get in your first one. You're at top-tier Metro SWAT at that point. Two in one week. What did that teach you about how to train for gunfights and then how to prepare yourself? Was there a lesson out of that? Oh my God, so many, it would take a couple of these <laughs> podcasts, but yeah, I mean, I think the overall seminal lesson there was I trained very diligently and you know, the minute I get off the range, I don't think about that. I'm thinking about surfing or, you know, whatever else, but when I trained, I trained and I really pushed myself and, and if I had a shortcoming and there were other individuals in SWAT as well, who are like I was, you know, you just, you wanted to be the best. You want to be the first to the door. You wanted to be give something back to the unit. So you work very diligently to imp- constantly, constantly improve your skill level. And it's just, you know, tons of times I had taken, you know, I had had uh, suspects at gunpoint. I had been around other shootings and other people fired. I didn't. And suddenly, you know, you find yourself, this is it. And it happened so rapidly, so quickly that when it was all over, I thought, you know, I'm glad I trained as hard as I did. And one of the statements that I make, especially to those in law enforcement, because a lot of officers will come out and go, as soon as they get on the range, and you've probably heard this, when are we going home? When do we get out of here? Sure. You know, uh, do, do I have to, you know, do I have to do all this? You know, it's, it's too hot. It's too cold. I'm tired. I'm hungry. Well, 
I'll tell you what is really miserable or they're uncomfortable. What's miserable and uncomfortable are autopsies. And if you go to a policeman's autopsy, it's the most sobering thing you're ever going to see. Bottom line is, it's, it is of all the events you're going to participate in, in your law enforcement career, if it should come to you, the application of deadly force is going to be the most seminal uh, event you'll ever be involved in. And everything is on the line at that moment, not only in terms of your life and safety and that of your partner and the citizens, but also department. You're looking at liability. And yet it's traditionally the one area where we spend the least amount of time training our officers. And yet it has the most seminal effect. And if you think about this, Ferguson, what is that? Well, there you go, Ferguson PD, just that fast. You know, right or wrong, it's you're all over. And you could be the most unobtrusive police agency, four-man police agency in the United States. If you get in a controversial shooting these days, you're going to be plastered all over CNN, CNBC for weeks at a time. And this is something that everybody has to come to grips with in this day and age. So was I was very, very fortunate that I had trained, that I got good training, that I worked hard and diligently, and I was very glad. And, and exactly a week later, I get in the second one. And I remember uh, Chuck Higby, who was a legendary figure on LAPD, big, huge bear of a man, former Marine, I believe he was a World War II vet, big, huge paws and put his hands, shoulders around me. Well, Scotty, here we are again. What are you doing, kid? I go, well, you know, I don't know, Chuck. You know, geez, you know, sir, I just, I don't know. You know, this thing just happened. He goes, well, that's the way it goes. So it happens uh, at the most uh, un you know, just inconsequential, it seemingly, at times. In other words, you're expecting nothing to happen. I just had a, a San Bernardino shooting last year where the officer, it was his first day, first hour on the job was in a shooting, or the year before. Mm -hmm. First day, first hour on the job, and he's in a shooting. Less than an hour. Yep, yeah, I remember and that. He, and, and I remember talking, and he goes, well, I... Said, I wonder if it's always going to be like this. No, kid, it's not. I'm doing the walkthrough. No, this is very unusual. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> this is very unusual, but that has happened. Yeah. I, that you know, It just comes at you, and that's why you always have to be prepared. It's not that you have to be paranoid or, or anything else. It's just the fact that you're. this is your job, your chosen profession. You need to be professional about it. And the application of deadly force is more seminal now than it ever has been in the history of law enforcement. That's my personal belief. And we're more accountable than we ever have been before. Most, most certainly, yeah, absolutely. So I want to spend the rest of the time kind of talk, walking through some of these things that you train on and, and encourage people to train on. You mentioned mental composure. How do, we, how do we train for mental composure? Well, at ITTS, one of the things we do, we have a lot of drills. We have a lot of equipment. Um, we've developed a lot of equipment, uh, high-speed moving targets, knife attack targets, hostage rack targets. We have a lot of reactive armor, very unusual targets, which are, we designed and built ourselves. And we run drills. We constantly, in a space of a single day, we might run you through 40 to 60 different drills. In other words, it's not just standing there static doing one single drill. As soon as we do a drill, uh, you might you might have a second shot at it. Other than that, we move on. And what happens through the course of a single day is you're learning how to adapt. Now, for some people at the outset, they think, well, I want to try this again and again. Well, we're going to work on the basics, but what we're going to do is now we're going to adapt. You're going to have to adapt to the next problem, which is what gunfighting is all about, adaptation at speed. And very, within, I'd say about half a day, students that have never been with us before start really getting into the program going, oh my God, now I got it. Now I get it. Now I understand what you're doing. And you actually become composed because you have the basic mechanics, but you learn how to adapt those basic mechanics to the different firing solutions with which you're presented at any one time. So if I change something up on you, I said, well, now you're going to do this. And they go, okay, well, now we're going to do this. And you learn how to modify, and that actually instills and inculcates a sense of emotional stability and composure. You go, okay, I've been here before. I'm just going to do this. this I'm going to bleed off a little bit of speed. I'm going to modify this. I'm going to modify that. And that actually what we find is that that really goes light years ahead of just doing a static qualification, quote unquote, uh, drill. You're constantly thinking and you're constantly processing information and you're constantly adapting to the problems of the firing solutions with which you're presented at the time. Do you advocate or do you suggest um, that 
it's adding a physicality to the training itself. You know, there's kind of a new method of, you know, knocking out 20 push-ups or running up a hill or carrying something or adding some sort of physical strenuous movement to get your heart rate up before you start shooting. Is that something that people should be doing? I mean, law enforcement specifically should be doing, or do you think that's just kind of smoke, smoke and mirrors? Well, you know, we do, we do that on occasions, but in, in all honesty, if you look at a lot of the shootings, there's very little physical involvement involved before the shooting. Now, I've been doing this for 28 years, so you can tell me anything you want, but I actually do this for real in the real world. So when I'm looking at these things, a lot of times there's not, we're not going, you're not necessarily fights, not necessarily foot pursuits, or not necessarily anything other than the fact that the officers are confronting somebody and what we're lacking are basic mechanics. We do have clanks uh, that we use from time to time, which is very heavy anchor chain with a hauser that's attached to it. Uh, that will have guys run between point A and B in obstacle courses because just to see what it's like when your heart rate is up. But what's more important is the decision-making skills and your clean your exhibition of clean mechanics. Can you pull off clean mechanics when you're under stress and you have to adapt to it and you have to think your way through the problem? Is there a way to enhance or practice your decision-making skills other than – being on the range doing, I mean, something you can do on a daily basis if, if you're not going to be at a range or at, a, at, your, at one of your courses. Well, I would say probably one of the best, if you're in a law enforcement officer, and this is what we used to do, what would happen if this? What would happen if that? Um, anytime that we do stops in Metro or stock and trade, especially in SWAT, we're felony obs arrest. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what you went after, the big tuna. And so you're looking for dope money guns, bad guys, gang members. And every time you'd make a stop... You know, if whether you hook the guys up or not, you'd sit there with your partner and go, okay. You know, and you'd actually spend a, maybe a minute or two just, did you see that? Did you see this? What could we have done differently? Uh, did you catch that? Did you catch this? So you're constantly what-ifing the problem. And by doing that, hmm. what you are doing is, in fact, is you're enhancing your skill-making ability or your decision-making abilities due to the fact that you've, you've gone through so many different scenarios and every scenario, all police encounters are very much extemporaneous. They just happen because they happen for whatever reason they happen. A lot of times there's no logic to it. There's no linear thought pattern. It's just you're in it. And, and I'm sure you've seen this as a policeman. You know, you're saying, asking yourself, what in the hell is going on here? <laughs> How did this happen? And you look back at it and a script writer for Hollywood couldn't come up with it. Mm-hmm. And yet it actually transpired for real in the real world. And I know you've experienced this. Any street cop worth of salt has experienced that many times. So by going through it and reevaluating and by what ifing, that can go a long way. You don't physically have to go through sit sims or anything else. You just simply talk you through it. Or, Wait, what would you do with this? How would you handle this? And or just think about it to yourself. You can just kind of thought process. Mm-hmm. But you do, you do have to do this ahead of time. And I think what a lot of police can do is they just hope it will never come to them. Though the unfortunate thing is you have a badge. You are out there in the, on the field. You are expected to go out there and perform your duties. And so it can come to you. And I think a lot of people just pray and wish that it doesn't. And hope is not a tactic. So that's a good point to bring up the combat mindset. You call it the combat mindset. What is that? Well, it's interesting. Um Believe it or not, I just wrote an article uh, about uh, a female name. I watched a thing called uh, The Tower. It's about the Austin Tower uh, movie. Or it's a movie about the Austin Tower. Whitman, 1966, Austin Tower, Texas, University of Texas. And in there, I wrote about a female. It's for a SWAT magazine called Rita Star Pattern. Who you'd never, you know, who's Rita Star Pattern? And she's actually a young liberal female, young girl at the time, kind of looked like Janis Joplin, runs out into the middle of the quad when Whitman is killing people. And he's already put down a number of bodies. It's 100 degrees. She lays down next to this pregnant woman who was the first victim and stayed with her the whole time, wearing nothing more than a simple dress and a purse and exposed herself to gunfire. She's the only person that did that for an hour, over an hour, almost 90 minutes. She stayed there with her, wouldn't leave. And you think about that and you go, my God, well, where did that come from? In a sense, that's kind of combat mindset. She just, she looked around and there are hundreds of people, nobody's doing anything. And she went out and risked her life for this woman who she'd never met before. I, I found it absolutely fascinating. And the combat mindset is basically, what would I do if this happened? And understanding that sometimes there are going to be things beyond your control. 
And there's some people out there that say, well, I couldn't do that or I couldn't take another life. Okay. That may be, there are actually officers who refuse to take another life. I have personal experience with that, even with a guy in SWAT who refused to shoot another person, as strange as that may seem. I've always taught our classes that, look, you're not, it's not like a war where you have one conscripted army fighting against another conscripted army. Most of the people we come against are bad guys who have placed themselves or you into that prediction or into that situation simply by their actions. In other words, they've caused this event to unfold in the manner in which it's unfolded. And you may not have any recourse other than the application of deadly force at that point in time. In other words, the individual's actions vacate every other reasonable use of force option that you have. They can't be negotiated with. Uh, They can't be bargained with. They can't be dealt with. And so combat mindset is understanding that that day may come to you. And if it does, you have to be prepared for it and just understand that you may have to, whether you want to take another human life, whether you, you think you can or not, that it may in fact come to you, especially in law enforcement. And, I, and it's always amazed me, and all these officers that I have you know, deep, you know, defended throughout for the last 28 years, I always make a point of asking them, did you ever think this would happen to you? And almost universally, I never thought this would happen to me, ever. And in the back of my mind, I think, well, you're a policeman. And okay, that's why we're here. Because you never thought it would happen. And the reason that the shooting might have gone somewhat sideways in some cases is because you really didn't think it could happen. You didn't have, you, you weren't built up to that combat mindset. This is also where we get panic, you know, panic response and, you know, all the officers unloading instead of, you know, accurate fire. And, you know, that's all changed dramatically so. So you, know, you, you can't get away with that. Yeah. No, absolutely, and it, it kind of reminds me of the color codes. I, I've drawn a blank on the guy's name, but, you know, condition Cooper. white. Cooper. Cooper's color codes, right, mm-hmm. um, and how we oftentimes, you know, they added co- color uh, mm-hmm. black as that, you know, you've, you've blacked out and you can't make decisions and you've frozen up, but also we don't want to be in white, um, mm-hmm. which um, people equate well, with. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the color code uh, thing was, and if I'm not mistaken, Jeff Cooper came out with that kind of a result of DEFCON and everything else. And white was you're completely oblivious. Yellow, you're sort of aware. Orange, I've got a specific thing that might turn into it. Red red is like, okay, this is not good. You know, here I am, and black, you're in the fight. So basically the color code was perceiving. If you're driving down the road and, and you're not paying, you know, you're off on la-la land, you know, looking at the seagulls and puffy white clouds, and all of a sudden the CHP lights you up from behind, well, shame on you because you didn't pay attention. You didn't see the guy coming. Now, now you're in white. Or, you know, orange is like, okay, there's, there's the CHP, I'm going to slow down. You know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, you, again, it is aware of your surroundings. It's not being paranoid, but being somewhat aware of your surroundings and understanding and watching and paying attention, pinging on indices which might foretell of a developing problem or scenario which could turn into a deadly force. And sometimes that is absolutely instantaneous you, you know you get out of your vehicle and suddenly this guy's unloading well that's pretty much everything's off the table there but on the other hand you have the guy who's this these are the bad ones the fervent movement mm-hmm. you know guy going in his waistband i can't tell you how many foot pursuits i was in when guys were slinging rock you know and you know and super cools and sherms and all that stuff and slinging juice you know and they're running their hands are going their waistband you had to shoot them you waited we watched and waited to see that gun and in a lot of those cases, other officers probably would have shot, would have fired. And I would lose count of the amount of times that I could have justified shooting somebody. I didn't. I only did it when my back was to the wall theory. And I had no other reasonable use of force option. And you talk about that in the book. And you've arrested probably hundreds of guys who were armed, uh, mm-hmm. who didn't, uh, who decided not to take you on. And I thought that was a good it was worth retelling here to emphasize what that was, but you got into the habit of asking these guys why they chose not to fight you. And what, what were the answers you were given? Well, they weren't hundreds of guys that were armed, but I mean, a lot of guys that were armed, uh, but you know, we get guns and knives and stuff like that. And the one, one of the more telling ones was an individual that we had stopped. I was in Metro at the time and we pull him over residential neighborhood. It was in the uh, middle of the day and you, you could tell the guys were hinked up. Something was wrong. So we don't approach vehicles in Metro. We didn't then. 
And so we get back and we're both of us, the minute they start hinking, okay, fine, draw it a little ready. Now we're waiting, we're trying to figure out issuing commands. And one guy finally gets, the driver gets out, get him off, phone him out to the side. The other guy kind of hesitates. We get him out. He's got a shoulder holster on. He's got a 45, which was fully loaded, which he had taken out very surreptitiously facing away from us, place it on the floorboard. And it was fully loaded, you know, one in the chamber, hammer back condition one, full magazine. He had two magazines and a pouch on the other side on the shoulder holster. And he had a jacket on. And I made a point of asking, why didn't you do it? And he goes, you guys had me. So the way you got out, I knew you guys had me. And th this is the kind of guy that had you had the policeman that kind of walked up and he's got a five-pound Krispy Kreme hanging off his lower lip. He probably would have moved on him. But because we comported ourselves in, in the old days, and, you know, you look at guys from Metro, get two guys that come out they're squared away they're in shape and they're very attuned to what's going on you know most suspects go okay this is these aren't your this isn't these aren't field grade there's something wrong with this picture and they have a tendency not to not to challenge it so much they're going to at some point but a lot of them they just you know what this isn't worth it and they're going to comply you know i found that the the hardened guys, the guys who who can read us, they can read us as good as we can read them. You know, we we don't have the tattoos telling them what block we're from or whatnot, but they can read us as good as anybody. Uh, who's the rookie? Who's the vet? Who's who's scored away? Who's not? Um, and I think that's a great story, of a, a reminder of the command presence. But it's always that they can they can read our complacency too. Oh my God! Yes. Well, that's their stock and trade: reading victims, whether it's a civilian or a policeman. That's their stock and trade. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I can smell a cop a mile away. You know, you've got the Oakley glasses on, you've got the, the sidewalls, he's got the flip-flops on, he's got the little fan, you know, fanny pack to the front or whatever you call it. Okay. I got a cop here, <laughs> you know, yeah. or he's got a little Glock t-shirt or something like that. You know, come on guys. And just like, you know, if it walks like a duck, looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, yeah, it's a duck. And boy, do bad guys ping on that stuff. And they do when you're in uniform, they look at you right away and they get a sense uh, if you know what you're doing. If you can hold your own, and if if you do, they'll probably they'll probably pass on you. It's the guys that get out that they think they can take that they're going to work, and that's the problem. You know, it's it's a this is more of a story for the audience, but it was a good example that I remember is we had a guy on training, and we're out. Uh, I'm out with four other guys, and we're out with a couple of gang members, and it's all guys most of us have dealt with before, and they're chipping a little bit, but they're not being you know not being too big a pain, but. We're scratching him some tickets on some on some stuff, and uh, one of the guys looks at me, and the, you know they they see my stripes, so they they're kind of talking to me. Hey, and they kind of one guy pulls me over, he's like, "Hey, come here." And this 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 homie, so I, I come over, he looks at me, he's look, and he's like, points to the new guy, the trainee, the guy who's on, he's probably been on training for like six eight weeks. They go, "Why is he so scared?" <laughs> I said, hey, "Interesting, you why why does he mm -hmm. look scared to you?" Sure. And he pointed out a whole bunch of his body language. And then mm -hmm. he pointed out something that was very interesting. And he's like, and I kind of chuckled. And he's like, plus, he's the only one holding his posse box. And he didn't say, he didn't use the slang posse box, but he was the only one who had his citation uh, uh, pad in its little holder with the tape and the, the, the pencil holder and the mm -hmm. clip to hold the driver's license. He's the only one holding this thing, writing out the citation. Everyone else is just, you know, carries it in their back pocket and, and is knocking knocking out the sights there. And I thought that was a really fascinating observation for this gangster to make. He picked up on the new guy by the by his equipment that he was choosing mm -hmm. to use. Oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah, they're yeah. You know, uh, don't uh, never underestimate the opposition. Don't ever do that. Very much so. So, you know, to be one of these guys that that becomes a high performer, it, you know, there's there's unfortunately large swaths of this country that don't have access to people like you who with histories like Los Angeles PD uh, and there's certainly great agencies all over the country, but there's, there's areas where people have to go to the range and they have to take it upon themselves to, to train themselves. So what are some of the good drills that you are, that you would recommend people start with that maybe progress them from your basic Academy past the qual through maybe some more competency and maybe not specific things, but some mm -hmm. things that we should be added. Well, one, I'll give you two different drills, for instance, and I've got tons of them, but two of them are, uh, one is a pushback drill. And then we start at the three-yard line. First, cold drills are good. So set up a cold drill, which is a little bit more difficult than anything else, and you get one shot at it. And that cold drill is kind of shows you where you are right then and there. However, one of the things, and I'll caution everybody on this, you can take 
this is just my personal belief, and I mention it in book number two on the art of modern gunfighting. There are actually three volumes to, to the pistol alone. That's only volume one. So there are two more. The other one will hopefully come out this summer, and then I'm already working on the next one, which will be the third. But I mentioned in volume two that there is about, you can take 30% of your skill level that you have on the range and throw it away in a righteous gunfight because now you have real decisions, real fears, real trepidations, real protocols, real police policies, laws, procedures you have to, that you have to account for, backgrounds, and so forth. Plus, not, not to mention all the other things that can go into it low level. I mean, just completely off-the-wall things which are going to occur. Impediments, obstacles, you know, lighting conditions, high-speed moving targets, partial targets, and on and on. So take 30% of your skill level, toss it away. But do a cold drill. That's number one. Come out, one person, and have in, if, if the best way to do it, if you really want a good cold drill, if you have a lot of people, they all do the same one at the same time or a smaller number. They, you give each guy a different drill. And after that, and the other people come into it blind, so one person does it. You have them step off to the side. You watch the others, the others. And then after that, debrief it. What did you guys say? And it kind of gets everybody's mind on the same sheet of music. They go, oh, my God. I would have done that. Or, oh, my God, I saw that. I never noticed that before. Because you don't notice it if you're all in the line at the same time. Go to a pushback drill. Uh, start at three yards. Draw, fire, have a specific area in the target, fire one round. You know, uh, safely holster, come back, pause, holster, you know, reset safeties, finger off the trigger, reset safeties at low ready before you start one micronal unit of distance river travel. Come back, pause above the holster to ensure you don't shoot yourself. You know, you've got to make sure, guy. you know, just safety is a huge thing. We have a flawless safety record for a reason. And then you step back two paces, do it again. And you do the, the two paces all the way back to 25. And then you can come back, repeat it now in pairs. Or then you can come up and you can, uh, then the next one are blind drills. You have three targets, use painter's tape. Take silhouettes, two pieces of tape together parallel denotes two body shots. One piece of tape anywhere on, anywhere on the target is a single headshot. No tape is a no shoot. So you have the student put his head down, cross his arm, close his eyes. The other students go forward, they reconfigurate the targets. It's a blind drill. Everybody steps back, line clear, go. The guy comes up and you, behind him you have an individual standing there monitoring and watching. What decisions did he make? How long did it take him to make those decisions? How quickly did he mentally process them and apply the mechanics? That's a simple blind drill, but you can do it with nothing more than target and some blue painter's tape. Um, what's your opinion on using the chronograph for the, you know, the timers? Is, is that important or is that, does that give feedback or is that not necessary? Mild, interesting. It's like martini knowledge. You know, it's nice to know, um, you know, you want to share it over a couple of martinis. I will tell you right now, unequivocally, the most denigrating factor in bad police shootings is excessive speed. Everybody is all about speed. I want to go to speed. I want to shoot quickly. I want to shoot quickly. The problem is you start training people to physically outrun what they can mentally process, you run into problems. I will tell you that right now. I work with some of the fastest shooters in the world. I worked, you know, at, when I worked as an adjunct factor out at Department of Energy, we had some world-class shooters come through. And they wanted to see what the shoot house was like. It was fairly new, relatively new back then. This is back in the 80s. And uh, out in Albuquerque, there were a group of us from SWAT that went out there, and we worked off-duty for Department of Energy, teaching their SRT-3. The guy get out there, high-speed shooter. I want to see what it's like to go to do what you guys do. Okay. And put them outside the door. How many targets? Having a clue. What do they look like? Wish I knew. Any shoot or no shoot? Having a clue on that one either. Any hostages? Jeez, I wouldn't know. I, well, I need more information. No, you get to go through the door, just like I do, into the unknown. And what we would see time and time again is guys coming in and just hosing every single target. Great. You just lost your job. You'll probably go to prison, and guess what? You'll never work again. Excessive speed. Everybody makes this big thing about excessive speed. That's the worst thing I think you can do. It's decision-making, which is critical. And then it's about, it's about making rounds count. And what I've seen a lot of lately is just some really outlandish techniques for somebody to make a name for themselves. And we see it on other ranges sometimes because literally emptying their pistol into targets. Well, you're training the person to do that in the real world, and that's precisely what they're going to do. And now, you know, it's one thing to defend an officer who's only put, you know, fired five or three rounds, and now suddenly we have officers firing 16 rounds at a single suspect. That becomes problematic. So you're training, you, you, people 
when you train, you really do need that background when you're training in actual court cases, actual shooting cases where you understand it intimately inside and out and understand the consequences where you can bankrupt an entire department. You can disband an entire police force. And it's, I can't overstate that. I really can't. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So, um, excessive speed, I can see how that's obviously a major issue. Uh, one of the other things that I wonder about and, you know, going back for people in California, they'll know this one, but, um, the Newhall shooting with highway patrol and mm-hmm. the short version of the story is two officers were executed on a traffic stop. It was a, it was, this was back in 72, I think maybe, maybe even earlier than that. Oh, it was, it was, uh, that, uh, Newhall was 1971. And you can probably brief this better than me, but the, mm-hmm. what the, what came out of that was that the, the two officers had engaged in this firefight, but hadn't reloaded. And they were found with their brass in their hands. This is back, mm-hmm. obviously, when revolvers were issued. Mm-hmm. And they had their brass in their hands. And what was surmised from that was that they had been trained on the range not to drop your brass on the ground and to collect it in your hand after mm-hmm. you fired the wheel. Um, so one of the things that came with that, of course, at least with my department, is we, you, know, you let your magazines drop. You let everything drop as you would not mm-hmm. to instill a bad habit. But then we get even further to some like the Pavlov's dog idea of yelling threat to instigate mm-hmm. the fire That's right, or gun or gun or something. Mm-hmm. How, what yeah, cool. do you have a better way to go about doing that? Well, absolutely. First of all, Newhall incident. Let me explain something. I just, I just gave, uh, I work with a police department about a federal entity about three weeks ago. I mentioned that same thing and I was stopped dead cold in my tracks and another instructor was in the class said, you know what? That's all wrong. And I just did research. I just wrote an article for it. It'll be in SWAT magazine in about three months. Uh, and the Newhall incident, uh, there was the, the there were four officers that were killed by the suspects Twining and Davis. It was right at Magic Mountain Parkway and the five. And I believe it was right seventy or sixty nine and nineteen seventy, I believe, or seventy one. And that was the um, Pence, Alan Gore. Um, I can't remember the other two. Lopez. I can't remember uh, the other officers. Frago. I can't remember the last. And what happened is there was no brass in the pockets. That was a fallacy. What happened is after that shooting, the officers were subsequently shot and killed. Two officers initially came up, uh, were shot and killed. And when the responding officers came up on the suspects, the officers were already down. They never saw it. They never saw the suspects. And they came under immediate gunfire. They were subsequently shot and killed. There was no brass in the pockets. After that incident, the CHP did change their training. And one of the things they changed in their training uh, regimen was not to hang on to expanded casings. And somehow that got, that became intertwined with the story of the oh, Newhall incident. Interesting. So yeah, to set the record straight and I hate, you know, and when he told me that I went, Oh my God. So I did the research and sure enough, one of the detectives who was on the CHP for 30 years, I can't remember his name. I think he's a, a sheriff's up in Madera County. Now he wrote the book on the Newhall incident. And he said that never happened. And it's, he said, it just frustrates him to this day because it's still perpetrated. I, I was taught that, that in 1976 in the LAPD Academy. Hmm. I have heard that ever since. And it wasn't until three weeks ago that I was corrected. And so I've written an article for SWAT magazine and hopefully this will help correct that as well, because these guys did a hell of a job with the things that they had at the time. I just, they just didn't have the training. And that's, that was, that was the seminal event, which really forced law enforcement in the United States to start taking uh, officer survival seriously and in a structured manner. So, you know, I think to get back to your question, how do you know, how do you, how do you train to that? Um, you don't let guys hose tons of rounds. You make them accountable for every single round that they're firing. Why did you fire more? You know, if I said this, uh, you know, reactive armor, you know, good react, high quality, not cold rolled steel, reactive armor when it goes down. Okay. The minute it goes down, stop shooting. In other words, do pullback drills where you get a guy right up to the edge and use whatever device you want to suddenly just they're about to press the trigger, say, you know, freeze down and then see if you can pull them what I call pullback. See if you can pull them off it, pull them off the shot. So you don't have what the opposition refers to as contagion fire. Uh, you don't have what we used to call in LEP in the old days a flock shoot where everybody just shoots. Um, the gun, yeah, when I've, I've listened to other people on the range on a PA system, gun, and every time they say gun, Guess what happens? Everybody shoots. Well, you do that again and again, ad nauseum throughout the day. Now, suddenly, 
the officer goes out in the street and somebody says gun. Doesn't mean that the guy has drawn a gun. He just says gun because he sees one, and so this individual automatically shoots. That is very much what you refer to as Pavlov. You can't do that. What you do is you give them like the blind drills. Now you're doing, because there are no gunfights that I'm aware of where a suspect has said gun or a suspect has said shoot or standby ready fire. Suspect's never done that. We're going off of what? Visual cues. And it's a visual, you know, input is what we're operating on in order to make those decisions. So giving these cues, gun, you know, shoot, kill, you know, whatever, it, you got to get away from that. You, use, you mix them up, stand by, ready, now. Something very simple. It doesn't have to be fast, but you get away from, I would, and I, we, have, we have for decades, you know, not going gun like that. Just, okay, what do you see? You know, why did you apply deadly force? Why did why didn't you stop when the, the the force when the threat cessated? You should have you know ideally that's what you're and you're held to a much higher standard now. I think it was, that's great advice and that's stuff that's you can apply to the range directly even with your friends. You know, two of you go out, you can create blind drills for each other and use targets that aren't just the circular or the the shadow silhouette targets. Use some mm-hmm. ability to identify a threat. Um, couple short questions for you before we wrap up. You know, one thing I was thinking about in anticipation of this episode is, aside from moving from the revolver to the, uh, the semi-automatic handgun, there haven't been a lot of technological advances in the gunfight itself. There's a lot of advances in the aftermath, you know, the, the critical mm-hmm. care and the medical care that we receive, the trauma care. That sort of stuff has saved a lot of officers' lives. So less officers are dying even as more are being assaulted because of the critical care we're getting. But in terms of the actual firearm, the actual thing that sits in your holster, the actual bullet that gets discharged from the barrel, not a ton has, has changed, but I'm curious what what you see, if there's any um, technology or alterations that you recommend for your sidearm or your pistol versus what, 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 when it comes out of the box. Well, yeah, first of all, most departments, you go to law enforcement, they're not going to let you modify the weapon. You may be issued it. If you're able to buy, purchase your own weapon, I would strongly suggest you do so. Find one that fits your hands. Uh, sometimes departments will issue a firearm uh, which needs training wheels. It has mud flaps and whip antennas on it, and you've got an officer that simply can't handle it. And therefore, I think that they should be given the option of hand, you know, purchasing a firearm on their own, LAPD allows you to, uh, that's going to fit your hands. Not everybody's the same. That's number one. Number two, you don't need mud flaps and whip antennas. You want to keep stuff simple. Uh, you know, you want night sights on it in case you lose all lighting systems. Uh, just because you have a light undermount doesn't mean it's going to work or you're going to have it. Uh, just because you have additional flashlights on your duty gear doesn't mean that those can't go down or sideways. So you do need night sights. Mark your sights with nail polish. But, you know, most people haven't done that. I've had shootings where officers have, fought, have done, not fared well in fights, in gunfights. We look at their pistol and their rear side or front side has moved all the way off left to right. And what you can do is just buy a simple bottle of dark red nail polish and put just a slash of it on there. And you can tell by picking up your pistol right away if your front side or rear side have ever moved. Uh, we have our own custom pistol uh, from Robar. 1911, and we have scribe marks put in there. But if you don't have scribe marks, just put nail polish. If the nail polish breaks or shifts, then your sights move. We've had officers come out to classes, and their sights have been completely maladated. I didn't know that. They don't pay attention to detail, and you're betting your life on this piece of equipment. you got to keep it clean. you got to clean the magazines. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not so much about the equipment. You know, Most of the equipment out there is fairly sturdy, uh, fairly reliable, but you do have to take care of it. You have to maintain it. A lot of officers, I hate this because officers come out and their pistols are bone dry. Well, I was told only a drop or two of oil. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. You're not in the Sahara Desert. You're not in a sandstorm. You want to keep these things wet. You want to keep them moving. And you're again, you're going to bet your life on it. And guys don't do that. They come out. These pistols are dry as a bone. You can hear you know, the springs squeaking. You can hear the slide abrading. And, you know, it's just – and it's frustrating. And I tell them, you know, look, you're betting your life on that piece of equipment. Almost, I would say, 98% of all officer-involved shootings are with a handgun, not with a shotgun or rifle. You don't get to it. It's with a handgun. It's what you have in the immediacy of the moment. And you better know that thing inside and out. You should be able to run. We can run. I can run my 1911 out to five, 600 yards and all the way up close. You can do critical shots, hostage shots. You can do work on moving targets. You know. You, and you can work both right-handed and left-handed only, and right-handed left eye only, and left-handed right eye only, and 
just all these different drills that you need to go through and understand that your pistol can accomplish that. So it's knowing that pistol, knowing it inside and out, shooting it very, very slowly to get real tight groupings and understand where it's grouping and marking the sights, keeping it clean and practicing with it. That's what you're betting your life on. So speaking of life, you've, you did 30 years with LAPD, most of it with Metro, as we described already what Metro and SWAT is, five OISs. Um, it takes a lot more than just good firearm skills to get through that. What did, how, what did you learn in hindsight? What did you learn about managing, surviving, and thriving in such a long career and such a demanding and such a challenging and such a stressful job? Well, I think you need um... – that's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, I think you need outside interest. I think you need, um, you know, I, I'm fascinated by all manner of things from astronomy to guitar playing to surfing to golfing, you know, you name it. Um, my wife's an incredible cook, you know, and just different, different stuff that, you know, I get into. Um, so you, you break away from it. You learn how to stabilize. You, you can't just live in that world. I think getting out and, you know, getting around and, and experiencing life so you can manage that stress and, and understanding and preparing for the future, you know, uh, you know, have sm- short term goals, long term goals. I know this sounds like life coaching, but, um, That's all of us have been through, is. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, but all of us have been through hard times and you're going to go through hard times and you just have to have, you have to, I've, I've been, we've been through real hard times. You have to just persevere and it's that mental health being able to decompress being able to have laughter, being able to find, you know, humor. That's why policemen have dark humor. You have to find humor in all the stuff because of what we deal with. And I think that's, I think that really is the key for my getting through. Family supported me and, you know, we all get along and nobody, I don't take myself too seriously. Uh, You know, I just have other things in life other than police work. I think that's a, a real critical factor. Have other goals, other interests. I think that's really, really important. All right, Scott Reitz, uh, thanks for being on the show, man. The, the book is The Art of Modern Gunfighting, The Pistol, Volume 1. You just said that Volume 2 is going to be out hopefully this summer. Is that right? That is correct. And uh, also International Tactical Training Solutions. Uh, seminars. Scott, seminars, excuse me. That's right. Um, Scott, where can people find out more about you and, and what you're doing? Yeah, if you go, you can Google my name, Scott Reitz, R-E-I-T-Z, or just go to I-T-T-S is another, or go to International Tactical Training Seminars in Los Angeles. Um, If you Google my name or you Google I-T-T-S, we're going to come up, and we're the only ones here in Los Angeles under that heading. And uh, we've got all our classes, and we've got all the information about us and our background. All you know, Our instructors are phenomenal instructors, LAPD SWAT, current members. Yeah, or, oh, internationaltactical.com. Internationaltactical.com. And I'll Dot put, com as well. I'll put uh, links to all of your contacts and everything in the show notes for this episode so people can go to the squadroom.net for this episode. And uh, they, if they're driving around or they can't write that down right now, they can go there to find out and recall all the places to find you. Are you on Instagram or Twitter or anything like that, like the youngsters? Am I, am I on Instagram or Twitter? <laughs> He's asking. We, yeah, we. I, I don't do computers, as you can see. I'm still Neolithic. I'm still not dragging knuckles. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, if you get a hold of uh, Instagram, yes. And uh, I don't know how that stuff works. Um, but, you know, and it's been a pleasure, absolute pleasure being on here with you. And uh, if, if you want me to return sometime in the future, if there are other questions that are generated by this, I'd love to address them. And thank you very much for what you do, because it is absolutely invaluable. Um, you know, and it's you know, you've taken it upon yourself and I give you a lot of credit kudos for that because there are a lot of, it seems like you have a lot of really good information going out there. And this is a very, uh, demanding and dangerous world in this day and age, especially for law enforcement. And we're working through some problems we've never had before, and we're going to have to figure them out together. No, I, I, the, I'll already open the invite for a return. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I learned today about things I can apply and bring to the range. So I'm not just sitting there at a static park target shooting five round center mass. So uh, I'm going to go out and try some of these things, bring it back. And I'd love to carry on this conversation uh, another time. My pleasure, Garrett. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. All right. Thanks for listening to the squad room. If you like what you heard today, and if you got something out of this conversation with Scott, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. I read each and every one of them, and it really helps spread the word about the show and get out our message to people who need to hear it. 
If you heard something today that you know a friend or a loved one needs to hear, please tell them about the show. You can go to thesquadroom.net and email this episode directly to them. You can Facebook it to them. You can tweet it to them. You can link it, LinkedIn it to them. Is that, a, is that a thing? LinkedIn it? You can go to LinkedIn and share it there. You can pretty much do anything you want. But the way, you can grab their phone. Here's a good idea. Just take someone's phone, open up their app, their podcast app, and just download. Have them subscribe to this podcast right from their phone. And then they can get all the goodness that's, uh, that's coming in the next couple of weeks. Our job is tough, tougher than anything. We can put in a few words here, but if you want to reach out, start a conversation, ask a question, reach me at Garrett at the squadroom.net. That's Garrett, two R's, two T's. Lastly, I want to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Audible.com. With over 180,000 titles in their inventory, Audible has hundreds, probably thousands of audiobooks that apply directly to us in law enforcement. If it's a slow shift or a long commute, audiobooks are a great way to continue your education. To get a free 30-day trial and free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com slash the squad room to sign up. Until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.